Well, it's good to see you this morning. Looks like we need to do Easter again. I see a sea of blue today that I didn't see last Sunday. But I'm glad that you are here. I'm glad that the Lord is here. Uh, in the bulletin, there's a couple of announcements. I encourage you to read the bulletin. Uh, one thing I will make mention of is on May the 6th, there will be uh, the Mary Martha annual spring garage sale. It's not in the garage, it's in the gym. Um, but I guess a garage sale says it all. Uh, and if um, come and exchange treasures, if you'd like to sell something, they can rent a table. See Summer, she'll give you the details because that's all I know. Okay, and her phone number's in the bulletin, and she's sitting here in the one, two, three, fourth row. Okay, um, I believe that the fellowship breakfast will be the same day, cramming a whole lot into one day, and I think they invited everybody to come to breakfast that day. Is what happened in the first service. If he spoke with uh, authorization, that'll be his problem. Um, but it's happening on May sixth. This morning, I want to direct your attention to the words of the Apostle Paul that he brought to the church in Philippi in the second chapter, where he said in the fifth verse, Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The last two Sundays, we spent a great deal of time talking about that cross and the crucifixion and what Jesus Christ accomplished for us when he died for our sins and then rose again on Easter Sunday morning. And we have talked about the fact that the Apostle Paul gives to us the only logical response in light of everything that God has done for us and the mercies that he's shown to us. Paul said your only logical response, the only right worship is to make yourself a living sacrifice. Offer your body a living sacrifice. To believe in, the proper response is to believe in Jesus Christ with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength that He is the Son of God, that He died for your sins, and that He can come and forgive you and come into your heart and come into your life. What I want to focus on this morning is beginning in verse 9 as we look at the consequence for Jesus when Jesus rose from the grave. And that is, begins the verse 9, and it says, Now that he's risen from the grave, therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I know that when we read that passage of Scripture, there's probably several different responses or respect perspectives to look at it. I know that some people look at that and, and they say that's what's going to happen when Jesus comes again. And I agree with them. The Scripture says that every eye shall see him, even those who pierced him. 
And in that moment, they're all going to confess that he indeed was who he said he was. He indeed is the Son of God. Everyone will fall on their knees, some to their demise, because they waited too long to declare him to be the Lord of their life. For others, it'll be the most glorious day and the beginning of a glorious day that never ends when we enter into his presence. Some people, when they read that every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, they think of that moment of salvation that you experience when you put Romans chapter 10, verses 9 and 10 into practice, where you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. And both of those perspectives are absolutely right about that name, a given above every name. But this morning, I want to say that it's even more than that. And to back up my statement, I want to look at what Paul wrote to the church in Ephesus, the first chapter. In Ephesians chapter 1, he's in a prayer. And if you look in the original language, it's one of those prayers that goes on and on and on. There's no punctuation in the Greek. And so some of the modern translations have put periods and commas, but it went on and on. And, and we break into this prayer where he said, I'm praying that having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? He said, I pray that what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. In my notes I underline that for above all rule, all authority, all power, all dominion, above every name. That's the name of Jesus. Verse 22, And he put all things under his feet and gave him as a head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's a whole lot of material that we could preach in that little section, but I want to give you a summary for today for what Paul prayed right there. Paul prayed, that we never lose the understanding of who Jesus is. Never lose the understanding of who he is. He is the one that has a name above every name. He is the one that every other authority will bow down to. He is the one that every other dominion will submit to. The name above every name. And he sits at the right hand of the Father on the throne in heaven. But get this. We jump over to chapter 2, verse 6. He, or God, raises up with him. Now, if you go back in the context, he said, You were once dead in your trespasses and sin, but God, whose riches and mercy has saved you. And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. He's, he raised us up in the spirit realm and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. 
The second thing that Paul wants you to understand from this context today that I want to point out is this. Paul prayed that we would understand our position in Christ and never forget it. That we would understand who we are in Jesus Christ and never forget it. And the reason I say that is because one of the places that the enemy attacks us most often is in your identity. He wants you to live out the identity of your past. He wants you to live out the identity of somebody who thinks less of you than they ought to think of you. But we need to live under the identity of who we are in Jesus Christ. Seated with him who has a name above every name. I remind you that John the Baptist, when he came preaching, do you remember what his number one message was? Repent. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is at hand. One day Jesus comes to the Jordan River. And he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Jesus comes saying, The kingdom is here. The kingdom is here. Jesus came to found in a new way the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And I want you to know that the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, you read about it a whole lot in Matthew. And Matthew is the gospel of the king. And you'll read several stories. And the kingdom of heaven, or the kingdom of God, is like, and it's interchangeable, it's like this. The, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is not about real estate. It's not about a geographical location. You remember when Pilate was interrogating Jesus? You know, you read all that story just a couple weeks ago, Easter and all that. You all read it, right? And... Uh, Pilate says, so you're king then? And Jesus responds something, yeah, you're God. But my kingdom's not like this, it's not of this world. Because if it was of this world, my followers, they would come and they would break me out of this place. But my kingdom is not real estate. My kingdom is in the hearts of people. Jesus came to start a kingdom that will never end. Now, you read in the book of Daniel, he has these visions about all these kingdoms, this statue, and these, and these statues indicates several different empires. And then there's a stone that comes rolling down the hill and wipes out that big statue. And a kingdom that will never end is begun. Do you know, have you studied enough history to know that every empire, world empire, world power that's ever risen has fallen? Everyone but the United States. And if the United States doesn't repent, it's on its way down as well. I didn't come to bum you out. But I thank God that I am a citizen of the United States, but more than that, I thank God for my citizenship in the kingdom of heaven. 
because every empire that has fallen, the kingdom of Jesus Christ continues to live on in those empires. And in fact, the kingdom of God continues to thrive even more and more. And the more they try to do away with the kingdom of God, the more people come into the kingdom of God. And if you read the statistics of what's going on around the globe today, there's thousands of people every day coming into the kingdom of God by receiving Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And I say, Jesus, let it happen in the United States of America. Let your kingdom rise in glory and power in the day in which we live. Amen, Pastor. Good preaching. One day, every tongue will confess he's the King of kings and he's the Lord of lords. There are probably several reasons why the apostle prayed for the Ephesians. And you know, as he prayed for them, he didn't know it, but he was praying for you too. Because God put it here in what we call the inspired word of God. He was praying for believers. But one of the reasons that he prayed that prayer for them, that they would understand who they are and who, who they are in Christ Jesus and who Christ Jesus is, is because the culture that they were living in was very opposed to them as Christians. By the time that Paul writes this letter, the Jews have come to the conclusion that Christians are a bunch of heretics, they're a bunch of blasphemers. There's no room for them in our culture. Do away with them. See, here the problem with the total culture was this. Because of the wealth of some of the Sadducees who were part of the Jewish cult, or, cult, or religion, uh, they had favor with Caesar in the fact that they could continue to be a religious group and they continued to worship God the way that they were worshiping God. No one else in the Roman Empire had that privilege. They were demanded to worship Caesar. So when the Jews said Christians aren't part of us, the Romans didn't accept them either. And so now the Jews are trying to get rid of the Christians and the Romans try to get rid of the Christians. And so Paul is writing to people who will, the, the, the persecution is rising on an ongoing basis. And in the midst of that persecution, in the midst of those times where fear could come on them, he, wants, he prays for them and he wants them to understand who Jesus Christ is and who you are in Christ Jesus. I said he prayed for us because we live in a world that's gone mad. We live in a time where evil is called good and good is called evil. We live in a world where those who tolerate immorality want to cancel out anybody who says that's immoral. We live in a day very similar to what Paul said to Timothy. In the last days, know this, there will be perilous times. Men will be lovers of themselves and on and on and disobedient to the parents and down to this, that they goes. I hope you don't watch CNN very too long or Fox News too much or any national news too much. Because if you spend too much time watching that news, you know what's going to happen in your heart? 
there's going to be all kinds of fear. All kinds of fear that's going to come. Because the media is doing the work of the enemy to disperse and to dispense fear, to, to cause people to live in fear. Why do we have all the tension between the political? It's all about fear. It's about hate. But we don't live under fear or with fear. Because Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1.7, God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. The psalmist wrote in Psalms 27.1, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Whom shall I be afraid? In the 118th Psalm, the 6th verse, The Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me? And I can hear Paul saying in Romans chapter 8, If God's for us, who can be against us? Psalms 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots, some in horses, some in missiles, some in nuclear bombs. But we trust in the name of the Lord our God. John 1, 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Proverbs 18.10, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Amen? Amen. The name of the Lord. The name of the Lord. Look what Jesus told the twelve. Well, actually it was eleven because Judas has already left. In the upper room. John 14, 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. There is strength in the name of the Lord. There is power in the name of the Lord. There is hope in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's the chorus to the song that Gaithers and Sandy Patty wrote back in 1986. There's strength in the name of the Lord, power in the name of the Lord, hope in the name of the Lord. And I know so many songs about the name of the Lord because there's power, there's hope, there's strength. And we have this promise of whatever we ask in His name. That's a whole other message. We'll come back to that someday. Um, the name of God. Many of you remember reading Exodus chapter 3. And even people who don't read the Bible have heard somewhat of the story. Because that was the day that Moses' attention was captured by a, we call it a burning bush. But the bush wasn't burning, it was just consumed by, it was surrounded by fire. 
And that's what caught his attention. Fire, but the bush is not being disintegrated. And so he walks closer to the fire, and as he gets close, he hears a voice speak to him, Moses, Moses, take off your shoes, you're on holy ground. And lo and behold, he stands there and takes off his shoes and begins this conversation with the voice from the fire. And God says to him, Moses, I heard my people crying down in Egypt. And I want you to go back to there from where you left 40 years ago when you ran for your life. I want you to go back there and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. He said, I've heard their cry. They've been in slavery now for a couple hundred years or longer. Because remember, they moved there as free people, 70 of them, Jacob's sons, because Joseph, God sent him ahead. And they were living in Goshen, but Joseph died, and the Pharaoh who knew Joseph died, and the son to the two or three generations later, nobody remembered who Joseph was. But there was a whole bunch of Israeli people, a bunch of Hebrew people down here, and there's too many of them. The 70 have turned into a couple million, and this particular Pharaoh's the first one who decides, hey, that's a great workforce, and he made slaves out of them. And they are having to make bricks out of clay and straw. And uh, some other scholars believe that then not only that, but there was another crew. They ran the irrigation pumps, which were foot pumps out of the Nile River, foot pumps where they would pump the water to irrigate the, the land to grow the crops for the Egyptians. And the taskmasters did not treat them kindly. They said, God, deliver us. God says, Moses, go deliver them. Go tell Pharaoh, let my people go. And you remember he had, he, I can't talk, I can't go. You, you got the wrong man and, and all of that. And um, he's running out of excuses. And then he comes up with a great one. Well, God, who am I going to tell? When they say, who sent you? Who am I, what am I going to say? What's your name, God? Do, do, I have a, do we have a good name that's going to impress them? And God says, tell them I am who I am. Yah. Tell them I am who I am. In the Hebrew, there's no uh, consonants, and so it's Y-H-V-H. And it stands for the self-existent one. The I am, the one who causes things to be, the great creator of everything, the one who's in charge of it all. The I am that I am. It was the most holy name in the Jewish culture, Israeli culture. A name that they, were, they would not even speak it. They wouldn't write it. They substituted a, another word for it. And they knew when they saw that substitution where they were talking about the most holy name of God. They, did, they treated it that way because God in the Ten Commandments said, Do not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. So they wanted to make sure that they didn't take that name in vain. They might use some other names that they called God, but not that one. And as time went on and the English alliteration became, they put some vowels in there and Jehovah. And for a long, long time, Jehovah. And recent scholars, they figured it's probably more likely to be Yahweh. Yahweh. And really the two of them are interchangeable. They both come back to the I am that I am. The I am that I am. And this morning, what I want to do for the next few minutes 
is um, look at how that name became compound names. There's at least 12 that I found in the, the Old Testament where Jehovah and something else, Yahweh and something else. And in, why did they add names? And as you read the story, what, it, what happened is God would reveal himself, more of himself, in a circumstance of their life. They understood he's, he's the God of everything, the God who created everything, but he would come close. He would come into their situation, and something would take place that they began to comprehend, comprehend something more about God and his nature and what he was going to do for them. And so they would tag it with a description. And the, the first one I want to look at is in Genesis 22, verse 14. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. And I put it in the King James Version because they have Jehovah-Jireh. If you read in modern translation like the ESV, this next screen, so Abraham called the name of the place the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. The new translations knew that we didn't know what Jehovah-Jireh meant, so they put that, they give us the definition, the Lord will provide. So the first compound name of God that I want to look at is Jehovah-Jireh, or Yahweh-Jireh, the Lord will provide. How did God reveal that name? Why did he name that place that? Genesis 22 begins with saying, and God, after some time, God tested Abraham. He tested him in a most profound way. He says, Abraham, I want you to take your son, your son Isaac, the one that you love, the one that you prayed for for 25 years before he was born. Now he's a young man. This is the man who's going to be your heir, the only heir that you have, the one who's going to help you create a, a, a family so large as like the stars of the sky and the sand of the sea, the father of a great nation. Take that son, take him to a, a place that I will show you, and I want you to offer him to me as a burnt offering. The Lord tested him. And it says that the next morning, early in the morning, Abraham got up, Saddled the donkey, got the firewood, got the fire, got his son Isaac and two servants and said, we're going to go for a walk and we're going to go worship. And how far are we going to walk? Well, the Lord will tell me when we get there. They walked for three days. For three days. And they get to a place and Abraham knows that this is the place. And he says to the servants, you stay here. We are going to go worship and we are going to come back. Isaac and Abraham start up the hill. Part way up the hill, Isaac's pretty astute. Father, he put the wood on his son's back, and he said, Father, we got the wood. You've got the fire. Where's the lamb? The eighth verse of Genesis 22 said this, And Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. 
Abraham knows I'm supposed to offer my son. I wonder where his stomach was when Isaac said, where's the sacrifice? Where's the lamb? But in faith, he says, God will provide the lamb. When they get to the top of the hill, the two of them take stones and they build an altar on which they can lay a sacrifice. And then Abraham turns to his son Isaac and said, Son, we're here because God told me to bring you here and lay you on this altar and offer him back to you. I've tried to imagine that conversation. Son, I love you very much. But I need to obey God. I'll make this as quick as I can possibly make it and as painless as possible make it. I don't know why. I don't know what's going to come of this. But I trust God. And he raises the knife and he says he's about to come down and God says, stop. 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 Do not lay a hand on your son. I know that you fear God. And there's a whole other series of messages. He didn't say that you love God. He said, I know that you fear God, seeing that you did not withhold your son. And the Bible says that Abraham looked up and he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its horns. And he went over and he got the ram and he offered it to God as a burnt offering. And I'll bet that was one happy offering. If anybody did a happy dance while they were worshiping, it would have been Abraham. And then he names the place Jehovah Jireh. In the mount of the Lord it's been seen. God will see to it. God will provide. That story is a picture of what God did for us on Calvary when he sent his only son. Only there was no substitute. He actually gave his son let him die, that you and I might have life. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. The Lord provided your salvation. You didn't. You can't. God gave his son that you and I might be born again. Now, when you read the story, it appears that Abraham's experience was this, that at the very last minute, God intervened. And provided a ram. What I love is the faith of Abraham when he says on the way up the mountain, God will provide himself a lamb for the burnt offering. The book of Hebrews tells us that Abraham believed in his heart because this was the promised son, that if he killed the son, God would raise him back to the, from the grave because he was the promised son. Let me ask you this question. Was that ram caught in the thicket over there just a coincidence? Was it a matter of happenstance? No. Jehovah Jireh. That lamb was on the hill before they got there. I don't know what moment he got his head caught, but he was there by divine appointment. 
God will provide. The application point, Jehovah Jireh is the promise of God's goodness and provision for every need. Jehovah Jireh is the promise of God's goodness and provision for every need. For those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ, you can live with the confidence that the Apostle Paul lived with when he wrote to the Philippians in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19. He said, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus, in his teaching, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, don't become anxious about what you're going to eat. Look at the birds of the air. They don't, they don't plant anything, they don't harvest anything, and yet they don't go hungry because the Father takes care of them. How much more will the Father in heaven take care of you? He said, don't be anxious about what you're going to wear. Consider the lilies of the field. I mean, they're more beautiful than Solomon and all of his fine uh, clothing. Because God clothed them. If God takes care of the lilies of the field, how much more will he take care of you? And then he makes this statement that's so important to live by. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. All these things will be added to you. Because he is Jehovah Jireh the God who will provide, the God who sees. He sees in advance and he takes care of what you're going to need when you get down the road. Exodus 15, 26, we come to the next compound word that I like to look at, the compound name of God. If you diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes and give ear to his commandments and keep all of his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. In the Hebrew would be Jehovah Rophi. Jehovah Rophi, the Lord your healer. The name, this name of God was revealed at a place called Mara. Mara was a three-day journey from the Red Sea for a couple of million people. They had gone through the Red Sea on dry ground, and then they watched as a Pharaoh's army was drowned in that sea because God caused the water to come back over them. They had the great song, the song of Miriam. They had the song of Moses. They have a day of rejoicing. And then they, God moves them, and he, they're following this cloud, God's presence. And he takes them to this place called Marah where there was water. And they are blessed to see water until they taste it. And the water was not fit for human consumption. It was bitter water. And they begin to grumble. And Moses cries out, Lord, now what? And he said, you see that tree over there, that log over there? Dump it in the water. And they throw the tree in the water, and behold, the water turns sweet. God used that moment to illustrate to them this fact. I'm the Lord your healer. You walk in obedience to my commands, my words, and you're going to experience divine healing. I will not send the diseases that the Egyptians have. I will give you health. I will be your healer. In Isaiah and in Peter's epistle, they both agree, one beforehand and one after, by his stripes 
we were healed. We were healed. Psalms 103 tells us He forgives all of our sins and heals all of our diseases. Psalms 107 says God sent His Word and He healed them. Jesus was anointed to heal the brokenhearted. Jeremiah 3.22, God comes and He's the healer who heals the backslider to be restored into relationship with the Father. Jehovah Rophi is ever ready to heal those who need a healing. Everywhere Jesus went, He healed the sick. He told us to lay hands on them and pray for them in His name, believing that people would be healed. And we do that, and sometimes they're healed instantly. Sometimes it's a process. I don't know why God does what He does, because He's God, and that's all I, you know, I'm going to leave it at that. But He told us to pray for healing, because He said, My name is Jehovah Rophi. And here's the thing. Jehovah Rophi is the only one who can heal us spiritually, morally, and physically. He's the only one who can make us completely whole. The only one. And the last two words of Exodus 15, 20, he's your, I'm your healer. I'm your healer. When he healed the water, what he wanted people to understand, at the beginning of their journey toward the promised land, what I did for this water, I can do for you. Just walk in obedience. Walk in obedience. We sing the song, You Hold My Every Moment. You Call My Raging Sea. You walk with me through fire and you heal all my disease. I trust in you. I trust in you. I believe you're my healer. I believe that you're all I need. I believe you're my portion. Did you know there's another scripture that says healing is a children's portion? I believe you're more than enough for me. Jesus, you're all I need. He's Jehovah Jireh. He's Jehovah Rophi. We move to Exodus chapter 17, verse 15, where it says, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it Jehovah Nisi. Jehovah Nisi. Reading the English Standard Version, it says, And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, The Lord is my banner. Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner. This is the story of Amalek or the Amalekites. They are watching this nation of people moving across the country and they're coming close to their border of the land that they have staked out as being theirs. And they don't want a couple of million people and their herds and their flocks going through their property. So they come and wage war. Moses says to Joshua, choose out some good men and you go fight. And then Moses goes up on the hill, or the mountain right there above the fight, and he takes Aaron and her with him. And as long as Moses is standing there with his hands up, dependence on God, in the context he talks about touching the throne of God, Joshua and the Israelites prevail in the battle. When his arms get tired and they come down to rest, his shoulders are aching, then the Amalekites begin to turn the tide. 
So up goes his arms again. It doesn't take very long before Ben and her, or Aaron and her, they, Ben, her, Aaron and her figure out, we need to hold his arms up. And they hold his arms up until the battle is won. And then he builds an altar and he names it Jehovah Nisi. The Lord is my banner. The Lord is my banner. Last fall, the month of September, I was invited to sing national anthems for two countries, the United States and for Canada, at the Highland Games, or the Highlander Games, the Highland Games. Um, and as they opened up these games, what happens is they have a place there at Tamoshanner Park in one of the fields that somebody with a PA system announces the clan and the clan will march in and formation and they have a drummer or some had a band and some of them had a cd um, but they they all come with a banner this is who we are this is our heritage they come with a banner moses built an altar and he said Jehovah is my banner. And though this is the only place that I know of in the Scripture, and I'm not saying it is the only, it's the only one I know of where that compound word is used, Jehovah Nisi, there are multiple instances in the story of the Scripture where we read this, the battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord. One of my favorite stories where that takes place is in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Jehoshaphat is king of Judah, Jerusalem. And uh, there are Ammon and, and Mount Seir and, and Moab have an allied army that they're going to march against Jerusalem, march against Jehoshaphat. They were kind enough to say, we're coming, we're going to wipe you out. Jehoshaphat calls for a prayer meeting and fasting. Let's fast and let's pray. And then he leads the people in prayer, public prayer. And you can read it in, in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And he ends his prayer with these words in the 12th verse. Oh, our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. In response to that prayer, God answers through a man named Jehaziel, a Levite, who declares, this is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. The instructions that were given to go to battle the next day, let me put it in a nutshell. Joshua says, I want you to find a bunch of these guys who can sing. They're going to run point. We're going to put the choir at the front lines when we go to battle. And they're going to go singing, give thanks to the Lord for his love endures forever. Jehovah Nisi. They went declaring, the Lord is our banner. God is our banner. 
God, give thanks to the Lord, His love endures forever. And the scripture says, when they began to sing, the Lord sent ambushes against the army of Moab, Ammon, and Mount Seir, and they destroyed each other, and the Israelites prevailed over them. Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. When I was typing this, my mind went to the Revolutionary War in the United States of America, talking about our banner. And you remember there was somebody watching the battle who wrote a song. The star-spangled banner. Oh, say does that star-spangled banner yet wave or the land of the you know, in the history of the United States, there have been some very moving pictures that I've seen of soldiers like Iwo Jima planting a flag on soil that they took in battle, the banner. I said that because we are in a spiritual war. Ephesians chapter 6 we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The people on the far fringes aren't our enemies. It's the powers of darkness, the principalities and rulers of the air. Satan and his demonic forces, we are at war with them. But listen, you don't have to be afraid in this war. Because Jehovah Nisi, the Lord is my banner. When I go to battle, I don't go alone. I go in the name of the name above all names. The one who has all the authority and power and dominion. The one who said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The Lord is my banner. One more, Ezekiel 48, 35. This is the last verse of that chapter. In this chapter, he's describing the city of God after God restores um, Jerusalem and Judah in captivity in Babylon. And he's given them all the gates of the city and the names of the gates and the measurements of the city. And he comes down, the circumference of the city shall be 18,000 cubits. And the name of that city from that time on shall be, The Lord is there. The Lord is there. Jehovah Shema. Jehovah Shema. The Lord is there. Now the book of Ezekiel is a, a series of visions that God gave to this man. Visions that had to do with the judgment that came against Judah for forsaking God and going after idols and and profaning the Sabbath and all of that. In one of the earlier visions in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel shares, I saw the presence of God leave the temple and leave the city. And the city was left desolate. He said, I saw that in the vision. Now as he's coming down to the end of his writing, he sees just the opposite take place. 
God, he sees this detailed vision of God bringing restoration to his people, restoration of his presence among his people. Jehovah Shema, the Lord is there. Consider this with me. Hebrews chapter 11, faith chapter. Now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. Verse 6 says this, And without faith it is impossible to please God or please Him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He is, or that He exists, and He rewards those who seek Him. If you must, if you draw near, you must believe that He exists, that He is the I Am, that He's the God who created it all and holds it all together. And that's true. But what I'm learning in life experience, in the course of different circumstances, especially those unexpected circumstances, those who would draw near to God must believe that He's Jehovah Shema, that the Lord is there, that the Lord is right here. In the course of doing life, most of us have had something that has taken place in our life that we have no power over. I have no ability in myself to handle the situation. And if you've not been there yet, that means you haven't got a bed yet. Situations that the natural response for the human being is fear, panic, anxiety. What am I going to do? How do I handle this? Here's a thought. If we don't learn how to deal with our fears, our fears will deal with us. If we don't learn how to deal with our fears, our fears will deal with us. And fears will define who we will be. That's why Paul said, God didn't give us the spirit of fear, but love and power. If you don't learn how to deal with your fears, your fears will rule over you. They'll rule over us. I want you to hear that promise wrapped up in this name. Jehovah Shema. The Lord is there. Have you ever just read Psalms 139, just kept reading it over, kind of chewing on the words? He starts out the earlier part of that, Lord, I know, you know when I sit down, you know when I stand up, you know my thoughts before I do. You hem me in behind and before. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's high, I cannot contain it. And then he says this in verse 7, Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol or hell, the place of the dead, you are there. Jehovah Shema. God said in Deuteronomy chapter 31, verse 6, He said this to the, to the Israeli people, Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. That's the Canaanites. For it's the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Joshua chapter 1, verse 5. Moses is dead. God says, Joshua, it's time for you to leave them. So I will be with you, 
I will not leave you or forsake you. Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. I just read the rest of it because I love this. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. He's with you, and he even sings songs over you. Loudly. Romans 8, I didn't put it in the, in the screen, but in Romans 8, you read it a couple times. He said, it's the Spirit that dwells in us. And he said, if the same Spirit that raised Christ dead from the dead dwells in you, it'll quicken your mortal body. That Spirit who dwells in you. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's Spirit dwells in you? Hebrews 13.5 said this, keep your life free from the love of money, be content with what you have, for he has said back in Deuteronomy 31.6, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He is Jehovah Shammah. Now, I intended when I started to go to Jehovah's Shalom and God is our peace. And Jehovah Roi, the Lord is my shepherd. But in my spirit, I got hung up right here on the Lord is here. And uh, I just felt like somebody just today needed to hear He's Jehovah Shema for you. The Lord is here. And maybe it's just me. But if that's okay, that's all right if that's the case. You need to hear it not because you don't believe in the greatness of God. You can sing with us how great is our God. or You can sing he's worthy of it all. And you can, all of those things. Because you believe it for somebody else. You can believe it for your neighbor. God's great. God's with you. God's never left you. But you find yourself in circumstances and you say, God, where'd you go? Why don't I feel you? Why don't I know you? Where are you, God? And as I'm typing in these last couple of pages, in my mind, I went back almost four years now to a motel room in Kennewick, Washington, where my dad and I had stopped after driving. We got up at 4 o'clock in the morning. Oh, no, we left at 4 o'clock in the morning to drive to Coeur d'Alene to, to be there in time for a um, noon care meeting and um, went through the care meeting, and then we were going to come home. Um, at that point in his life, he liked to drive, but I wasn't going to let him drive me. <laughs> so I'd driven all the way over there, and we'd come back to the Tri-Cities, and we decided we were going to spend the night. And uh, so we checked into a motel, and um, I got two rooms because I didn't want to hear him snore. <laughs> and he didn't always stay in bed as long as I wanted to stay in bed. So... Um, I've got two rooms. I put my clothes in my room, and 
I come back to his room and when I open the door, uh, he's standing right inside of the door, the motel room, which is right next to the bathroom and he's been in the bathroom, but he's standing there confused looking and he says, I can't see. I said, what's going on? I don't know, I can't see. Um, he kind of shakes his head and well, it's coming back and then he passed out. And, but I was standing close enough that I caught him and he leaned up against me and uh, he, was, he was out for just a short period of time and then he comes back and I said, what, what's going on? Oh, I'm fine. And only though that no, my dad knew that didn't mean anything if he said I'm fine. I'm fine. Um, I said, no, I don't know about that. And we stood there and we talking back and forth and I'm trying to check and to see if all the things are connected. And, and then he passed out again. Only this time when he passed out, it looked like to me it was more than just a faint. That he'd suddenly gone un- unconscious. And uh, I lay, lowered him to the floor and got out my phone, called 911, and talking to the dispatcher and t- describing what's going on. And she said, just stay on the phone and somebody will be there soon. About four minutes, and I'm not exaggerating, about four minutes, knock on the door, and there's an EMT. And uh, they come in, and they try to ascertain what's going on. First, we had to drag him off across the floor so we could open the door to get him, they could get him with their gurney. They put him on the gurney and they take him downstairs. And I go downstairs and I can see him in the ambulance. And uh, one of the EMTs comes out and said, um, we're going to have to intubate him because if we don't, we don't think he'll make it to the hospital, which is not even a mile away. I just want you to see how close all of this took place. I'm talking about Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Shema. When we were talking about staying in, in Kennewick and not driving on home, I pulled out my phone while I was driving, <laughs> pulled up an app, and uh, it was place where the road was as straight as an arrow for, you know, over there in the desert. Um, and I, I went to one of the apps that I have for booking things, and I, I went through the hotels looking for one that would be on the main drag that takes you through um, Kennewick um, so that we didn't have to get too far off the, the freeway so we can make good time uh, when we decide to go in the morning. And I also looked for one that was reasonably priced and with a, a chain that I was pretty sure they didn't have bed bugs um, and fleas. And I chose this one particular hotel and checked in. We had not been there 10 minutes when he had that stroke. I just happened to pick a motel that was about three blocks from the fire station and less than a mile from the hospital. Just coincidence, right? No. Jehovah Jireh. He saw what was ahead. The other thing I was 
thankful for is I was with him the day he had the stroke. He could have had that stroke anywhere. But we were together. God put us in a place where he could be attended to as quickly as possible. Took him to the, when he got to the hospital, um, they said, well, I think he's had a stroke. We want to do a test. But the problem was their machine was so old and his blood flow was so low that it didn't measure anything in, his, in the brain scan that they did. So, but they were pretty sure he, but they said, we, we need to send him to OHSU. And we were there, I don't know, three or four hours in that hospital room, in that ER. Um, during the time that I was there, the, the doctor who was in charge of the ICU came down to see if he was going to get a patient to take upstairs. Um, and he's conferring with the uh, ER doctor, and they're talking about all the symptoms that they see and things they don't see in terms of his response. And then he says, well, well what are you guys doing? What, 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 where you been? What are you doing? And I said, well, we were at a pastor's retreat, to our pastor's conference today. And he says, really? I'm a born-again believer too. And for the next 30, 40 minutes, we just shared, and, and uh, he did his best to encourage me. But you know what? I was as calm as could be, no anxiety, because I was able to add two plus two. The Lord is here. It wasn't coincidence I picked that motel. It wasn't coincidence that he didn't have the, that he had that stroke in the motel and not in the car when we were driving down the road. God was there every step of the way every step of the way they didn't think he'd make it through the night and of course they life lighted into HSU and he lived another 18 months because he wanted to make sure that the house got paid off before he went to see Jesus and, and that happened about six months before he went he was pretty stubborn but I share that story and I don't know why it came to my mind so vividly this morning but somebody needs to know whatever you're going through. Jehovah Shammah. The Lord is there. The Lord is there. And he's able to cause all things to work together for good to those who love God. And you say, I got here because I made some stupid mistakes. You know what? He can take our stupid mistakes and make them something beautiful when we just submit ourselves to the name above every name, has all power, all authority over every dominion. His name is Jesus. Jesus. He, Jesus and John, how many times did he say, I am? I am. It goes clear back to the burning bush. He's the I am that I am. We're going to stand and sing the song, Speak, I Speak Jesus.
I speak 